the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost. I am Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com. Mo is one of the most respected macro analysts to come out of South Africa. He is now in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets expertise. Together, we will unpack the biggest trends and issues and scratch beneath the surface to bring you our insights and share our love and passion for markets and investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to Magic Markets. Homes, cars, collectibles, you have sophisticated needs when it comes to insurance. So make sure you get bespoke insurance cover. Elite Risk Acceptances has you covered. Part of the old mutual group of companies, they are backed by over 180 years of insurance expertise. Visit eliterisk.co.za to find out more. Welcome to episode 15 of Magic Markets with your host, The Finance Ghost, joined by Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com as ever. And listeners will have noticed uh, as part of the intro, we're very happy to welcome Elite Risk Acceptances as a sponsor to the show. And uh, they specialize in bespoke insurance. And, and Mo, I just had to share with you a story at Mrs. Ghost's expense, which she'll kill me for about the word bespoke. But I distinctly remember at one point uh, she said to me, you know, that is such a bespoke item. And I just looked at her like she was insane. I was like, what on earth is bespoke? And she said, bespoke, what are you talking about? So I said, bespoke. And she just looked at me and laughed and realized that basically for her whole life, she thought that bespoke is actually an Afrikaans word, bespoke, that just gets used in English all the time, you know, like lacquer or buravos. So anyway, welcome to this bespoke episode of uh, Magic Markets, Mo, and it's good to have you here. Ghost, lovely to be on. I'm, I'm going to have to chirp you and tell you that it's because you're a ghost, so you bring the spook yeah, into bespoke. It's bespoke. <laughs> anyway, so uh, moving on to matters of markets uh, and hoping that Mrs. Ghost forgives me for that. <laughs> we've, uh, we've seen a bit of a sell-off in the markets, Mo. We've seen treasury yields climbing and a lot of people talking about that, but bonds are not the most understood thing in the world and they are complicated. So what we're going to try and do in this show is touch on some of the key concepts around, you know, these bonds, yields, what they mean for the equities market, which is what most people trade and what we try to focus on as best we can. You've written a really good blog post as ever this week on the topic. Where should we start? Should we just talk quickly about what bonds are? Just start right at the beginning and and spend a couple of minutes on that. I think so, Ghost. I mean, you know, for those listeners who, who don't know, uh, my website is mo-nose.com. So that's moe-nose.com. And I tend to put out some blog posts, some articles. It's it's more along the lines of sometimes slightly more technical stuff. Uh, but, you know, I did a piece recently. I call it Yield Breakout and Shadow Rates. And I, I want to tell the listeners, go out there, go and check it out on the blog because it gives you a nice primer. We'll cover some of the basic concepts in the show. But if you're more interested in, in what the space looks like, why it's so important to equity markets as well, uh, go and check that out. What is a bond? Now, we're not talking about the bond, the mortgage bond on your house. A bond is a financial instrument. And effectively, you know, it, it represents a claim on a company or on the issuer. That could be a country. It could be a company where you loan them money. And in return, they will pay you back 
some interest, which comes either in the form of a coupon or a combination of a coupon and principal. And that is a financial instrument that gets traded very much along the same lines as you'll be trading an equity. Now, it's not something that has really been prevalent in the retail markets. More recently, there have been some ETFs that will give you exposure. So for example, in the US, there's something called TLT. That's an ETF that actually gives you exposure to US treasuries if you want to be trading bonds. Uh, but I think that's the first point. The second point, and what really confuses people, is that when you look at bonds, people tend to refer to the bond yield. And the important point to note, before we even go anywhere with the discussion, is that the bond yield moves in the opposite direction to the bond price. It's very similar to a stock. If you're buying a stock at, say, 100 Rand, for example, and it pays you a 5 Rand dividend, it's got a 5 Rand yield. And then as the price of that stock moves up and down, you're, so for example, if you're then buying it at 90 Rand, and if the yield stayed the same, you'd now be getting a 6% yield, for example. And so that is why yields and the price of bonds tend to move in opposite directions. Yeah, that's right. And I want to distinguish between corporate bonds and government bonds. So if you have a look at any of the bond funds, they would typically have a mandate to hold both, and then they look to hold them in a combination. So there would be, in South Africa, it would be South African government bonds with a variety of different maturities, and we'll talk about the curve just now. You'll often see the banks will issue bonds, a number of corporates will issue bonds into the market, and it's basically just publicly traded debt, ultimately. So there are South African corporates who have these sort of medium-term note programs, if you've ever heard of that kind of concept, all that kind of stuff. And they use this to raise debt in the market rather than just going and getting a loan from the bank. Balanced funds will have a combination usually of equity and bonds because they are looking to reduce the risk. So it's often for uh, older savers or investors who are coming up to retirement, you know, just bring the volatility in the portfolio down and look to have a little bit of equities, a little bit of bonds, often gold. Uh, and, and a combination of all these things. Now, interestingly enough, Warren Buffett wasn't very kind about bonds in the Berkshire Hathaway letter that went out to shareholders, I think, last week. And, and he basically said at the moment, they're just not attractive investments because the yields are so low versus where they were a couple of decades ago, Mo, which was when you were in the markets. No, I'm just kidding. You're not, you're not that much of a boomer. But would you agree with that? Not, not, entirely, not entirely inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> you were a pre-2008 markets guy. We were talking about this off-air, whereas I, I came in after 08. So I've only ever known pain, where it, you at least you know, knew some joy pre-08. But would you agree with that? I mean, bond yields, they are very low. It's, not, it's objective. They are. But as an investment at the moment, do you think they're attractive, not so attractive? You know, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I, I think, first of all, I would say they're not attractive. I mean, I tend to agree with, with Warren Buffett, not because I'm a boomer, as you very, very impolitely called me. I'm not a boomer, but I remember times when bond deals were a lot higher. And and for those listeners that are not familiar with financial history, you know, let's, let's use, I'm going to use the U.S., tenure as an example, because when you look at risk-free rates around the world, you would argue that the U.S. Treasury is the risk-free rate, and you're looking at a tenure because generally that's kind of the midpoint of the curve. It's not 30 years out, and it's not paper that's due immediately. So if you look at the U.S. tenure, for example, you know, we, we had U.S. rates that were in the solid double digits back in the late 1970s, early 1980s. That's as the U.S. was trying to tame inflation. You had Volcker and he pushed interest rates so high. But from that point in time to where we are right now, we've really only had yields coming down. 
you know, not in a straight line, of course, but you've only had yields coming down. And then obviously 2008 financial crisis, not only did they come down, but they fell towards what is called the zero lower bound. And that's because theoretically you, you couldn't have bonds or, or an, a negative interest rate. Uh, and that theory is also flown out of the window because as it stands today, if you went and you bought, for example, a Swiss government bond, or if you bought several other European sovereign bonds, they will pay you, I say pay you, but they would give you a negative yield. So effectively, that means you're paying the issuer in order for them to borrow money from you. It's the inverse. So in that kind of context, if bonds are either very low single digit yielders or negative yielders, their value in a portfolio is certainly not ideal. Uh, in fact, it's subpar. Uh, and one could also argue, I don't want to get too complex, but at around zero, the price behavior of a bond goes absolutely bananas and it becomes almost as risky as holding a stock. So in that kind of context, in that kind of a world, there are two alternatives. People either go to, you could hold cash, sure, cash is boring, or you could hold equities. You know, if you're holding an equity that's yielding something, you could argue that that's better than a bond. We can debate whether that's right or not. And then bearing in mind that there's the rise of crypto. And a lot of people are saying, well, hey, guess what? Gold doesn't give me any yield. Uh, bonds don't give me any yield and neither does crypto. So I can bucket all of these things together as alternatives in my portfolio. Why do I want to hold government bonds? Why do I want to hold any kind of bonds if the yields and the return that it's offering me is this unattractive? Yeah, it's so interesting to put it in the same bucket as stuff like crypto. I mean, I, and I know it's not exactly what you're doing, but I saw Kathy Wood actually came out and said something to that effect on Twitter, you know, in the last couple of weeks or something like, you know, crypto is the new bonds or whatever. And I, I suspect she was making a reference to the lack of yield in both. And, and, and that, yeah, that's just a really interesting way of looking at the world. Something that I want to talk about, which you mentioned in your, in your, in your blog post as well, is the impact on equities valuations of when the long bond rate goes up because that's about all I know about fixed income really is what it does to equities prices and then and then you get to talk about all the other complicated stuff so you know putting the boom in boomer there's been a great run in these equity prices over the past year as we know and now they've cooled off and part of why they've cooled off is treasury yields going up so what happens is when you price an equity if you use a discounted cash flow, which is what you should be doing, because it's, in my opinion, still the best way to value a stock, it's, it gives you the best view of future cash flows. You take those future cash flows, you estimate them as best you can, and then you discount them back to today using an appropriate rate. So the way I normally do it is ignore debt in all those forecasts. Just focus on the equity cash flows that will come back to shareholders, discount those at the cost of equity, and then just subtract whatever today's debt is. And you know that's your equity value of the company. So the rate you use becomes a matter of art rather than science in valuations. If you're doing deal making, it's often used to actually justify a deal price as opposed to figure out a valuation. That's a bit of practical corporate finance for you. But basically, you would use a model that takes the risk-free rate, which is essentially the long bond rate in any given country, and you would add an equity risk premium to it, which varies from country to country, but in South Africa, it's normally 5 to 6%. And then you would potentially adjust it for, you know, company specific risks. You might rate, you would make the rate higher if the company is riskier because you're going to demand a bigger return from it and it makes today's valuation a little bit lower relative to those cash flows. If a company manages to de-risk itself, then you could bring that rate down a bit and, and you know, it would potentially increase the value today. And there's a whole bunch of other concepts that go with that, like beta and all sorts of stuff. But long story short, when that long treasury curve 
steepens, as it has done, then whenever anyone is inputting that rate into a discounted cash flow, the discount rate is going up, which essentially brings down the value of stocks. So Mo, I guess the big question is, why is that yield curve steepening? What is the concern in the market or the, or the driver of that phenomenon? Yeah, Ghost, I think a nice summary to what you said is is yields up, price down. You know, that's that's really the, the kind of behavior, not just on bonds, but on equity valuations as well. Um, you know, the irony of this is that with US 10-year yields now just around 1.5%, we're not even at levels that we were at at the start of last year, pre-pandemic. So it's just the fact that it's risen from levels, obviously around the middle of last year, of call it half a percent, to where we are right now at 1.5%, it's starting to spook markets. Now, why is it spooking markets? I mean, I wrote, uh, again, another piece on, on, on my website about three weeks ago called Risky Business, where we just looked at valuations being stretched, some of the risk flags that I was looking at in terms of markets. And, 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 and the simple fact of the matter is when you have these extensions in terms of valuations, it makes marginal moves. For example, a change in your discount rate uh, from, call it, 1.2 to 1.5% makes a massive difference simply because your valuations are already so extended. So you can't look at an indicator in isolation. You have to look at the whole, call it, dashboard of indicators in order to inform what are the pressure points and where is the market going to feel that pressure. Now, why is the market freaking out is quite simply we've had massive stimulus, both monetary and fiscal, from the US. We've spoken about MMT or modern monetary theory on this show. I've also recently done an interview with MoneyWeb talking about the same issue. And that's because we're sitting in the middle of a global experiment around modern monetary theory. We've got, and that is massive expansion in monetary policy and massive expansion in fiscal policy. Now, historically, how is this different from 08? In 08, you had massive monetary policy, but all of that got trapped in the banking system and didn't necessarily flow into the real economy. Right now, you've got all that stimulus from central banks, but it is flowing into the real economy. We could argue into capital markets as well, because people are taking their stimulus checks, they're going on to Robinhood and they're buying shares, right? But if that money drops directly into the economy, that transmission mechanism is so much more direct. There's a fear of inflation. And that's really what's causing the curve to steepen. What, what is the yield curve? I mean, the yield curve basically just looks at what are interest rates for a one-year bond, a two-year, five-year, 10-year, 30-year. And that, if you can picture it, gives you a curve. And again, this is all in the piece that I wrote. And what's happening now is that in the short end, policy rates are staying easy. Central banks are saying, hey, money's fine, everything's going okay. But people are saying, at some point in time, vaccines are gonna roll out, life's gonna go back to normal, and all of this money that's being created in the system is gonna go into expenditure. And when it goes into spend, and if you think about it logically, let's think about it from a small business perspective. Lots of small businesses out there have been suffering. Some of them, unfortunately, have had to close down. When normal demand resumes, there are fewer suppliers of goods and services out there and normal laws of supply and demand mean that you're going to get upward pressure on prices. And when that happens, that means inflation starts to come through. And if inflation comes through, people are going to expect to be compensated for that, which is why the long end of the bond curve, the yields, have to go up to compensate for that. That's what you're seeing in that US 10-year yield, is the short end is anchored by the Fed saying, money's cheap, it's going to stay cheap. But the long end is moving around because people are saying, hey, guys, when we open up the economy, there's all this free money that's coming to the system. It's going to start going into goods and services, and that is going to cause prices to rise. And inflation wrecks its own havoc, obviously. I would encourage anyone to go and have a look at what food inflation was in South Africa in the period after 2008. So go and have a look around 2010, give or take. 
It was frightening. It was double digit stuff in food inflation. It was really scary. And I'm someone who tracks my grocery spend every month. And I can tell you that uh, it, it, it is picking up. I've seen some rhetoric around Twitter, you know, on Twitter around that as well. So it's, it's interesting to see inflation starting to actually come into the system. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the other thing, though, is interestingly enough, you, you haven't seen inflation tick up in the official statistics. You haven't seen it really in the U.S. You're not even seeing it in, in, in South Africa yet. So this is the market saying we know the official stats are kind of, you know, just bumbling along. But when this thing breaks, can it break in a dislocating way? And I think that's some of the fear that's being priced into the markets, Wh whether it's legitimate or not, whether it, it actually does manifest in real risks of inflation and higher yields, we'll need to see. Uh, and it's very much reminiscent for me of, uh, if you cast your mind back to, I think it was 2013. This was after financial crisis. Uh, everyone thought we were out of the woods. Central banks started tightening monetary policy a little bit. And it resulted in what was called the taper tantrum. And that's because, again, bond yields actually rose quite a bit because the market thought, oh, well, the Fed's going to stop its quantitative easing program. Uh, we also saw premature tight tightening from the European Central Bank, which then very quickly had to reverse. And then they pulled back, uh, they got through, I think, one or two increases and then had to cut all the way back down, even lower to where they were before it had started. It was called the taper tantrum because kind of came and went and central banks eventually capitulated because they couldn't take the pain of a financial market dislocation and that filtering through into the real economy. And that's the question mark for me is, do in, in this game of chicken that central banks are playing with bond markets, who blinks first? Yeah, I'll remember the term tapered tantrum for the next time baby ghost uh, throws a few complaints around. But yes, that is, that is exactly right. It's a term that many of our listeners would have seen probably on Twitter or, you know, when they read articles on the likes of CNBC, you would have seen that kind of wording being used. Well, I think something we should also talk about is gold, which is a sore point for me currently. And I'm sort of deciding at what point, if any, I double down and and and, and put more money in at something like DRD gold, you know, it's hurting me. It's hurting me a lot and I can't decide what to do. I did buy a little bit of crypto, as regular readers will know. First time I've ever done that. So I spent a good two weekends getting my head around it um, as part of a feature that I wrote for the Financial Mail. And, and eventually I decided, okay, you know, I can I can do this thing. I can, I can put some crypto in my portfolio. But gold doesn't like it when yields go up because gold doesn't pay a yield. So I've seen a fair bit of commentary around how part of the pressure on the gold price is the steepening yield curve because it lets people put their money somewhere that gives a bit of yield. I'm not fully sure that I buy that because it's such a tiny yield in the bonds at the moment. It's not like it's, you know, you can get 10% on a bond or zero on gold. I don't know if you'd agree with that or I know you're a gold guy. So it would be interesting to get your views on, on what's going on in gold at the moment, I suppose, as we close off on, on this episode. Yeah, so, you know, I have this general ideological aversion, if you want to call it that, to what's happened in the world of, of fiat currencies. Uh, you can't get away from fiat currencies. Everything's denominated in dollars or rands or whatever it is. So you can't get away from it. Ironically, even holders of crypto look at the value of that in a fiat currency. Um, I hold gold for a very specific purpose. It's not just gold, it's alternative assets. Is What is my doomsday hedge? What is my hedge around a massive debasement of money which is around. It's been with us. Again, I wrote about this from 1971 to where we are now. We've just seen a debasement of money and all that equity markets have done or house prices, for example, is that they've kept pace with that debasement of money. Now, if you're someone with assets, that helped you. If you're someone without assets, that hurt you. If you're just a wage earner. Let's go back to gold. I still hold it in the portfolio. I just don't watch it every day or every week. 
I know what role it fulfills in my portfolio and it, it sits in a corner there, not causing anyone any harm. And you know, if it goes up or goes down, it doesn't matter, it fulfills a long-term purpose. I view crypto very much in a similar way. I hold gold, I hold crypto as well. Um, I haven't been very aggressive in the crypto space and I opportunistically look to buy in, but with very much a similar rationale to why I hold the gold. I'm not trading the gold price on uh, you know, highly leveraged gold miners, for example. I would like to trade the physical underlying asset, whether that's in a financial asset, whatever it may be. That's my exposure to gold. Um, in terms of how you choose your exposures, always make sure that you can actually bear the pain, carry the pain. But I think if you look at it as a portfolio effect, look at the reason for why you're adding something to the portfolio, and that has to make sense with your long-term strategy of what you're trying to achieve. But it's interesting that you concentrate more on the physical asset. I actually quite like the miners because it lets me do a very capital efficient allocation to gold. So for DRD, for example, their profit moves about 2.5% for every 1% shift in the gold price. So it's always felt to me almost like a gold CFD, except I don't get a margin call if it goes the wrong way, which mine has done quite beautifully. It's about 20% down, which is quite sore. And, and that's why I'm thinking, you know, if, it can, if the gold price keeps coming down towards 1600 even, at that point, I think I need to probably just average my in price and then just hold on. As you say, it's, it's a cool analogy with the sitting in the corner, not hurting anyone. You know, it's like that sweet uncle at Christmas, um, in, you know, in my case, of <laughs> someone just sitting there, he's not bothering anyone really, just, just hanging around, but you'd miss him if he was gone. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with gold. There's a lot of people who are worried about it to the downside, severely so. Yeah, and I think, you know, one maybe last point on gold is if you're holding a miner, you then have to start looking at what is the miner's cost structure? How vulnerable are they to labor disruptions? You know, what is, and, and so you're always playing the margin that the miner might be getting. For me, it's not a clean enough play on gold. Uh, if I wanted leverage to a, a move, let's say I thought there was going to be a big move in the gold price, I'd go and take a clean exposure on the gold price, maybe using leverage through futures, as an example. So there are many ways to, to, to slice and dice how you get your exposures to markets. I'm not saying my way is the right way and your way is the wrong way. I'm just saying there are different ways based on what your own views and risk appetites are. And that's why it's so critical that what we're doing here on Magic Markets is we're not giving advice. We're here to educate people, to show them that, hey, you can look at this from this perspective or from that perspective, do your own homework, do your DD, make up your own minds. And that's really what I guess we're trying to achieve. Yeah, exactly. Spot on. I mean, the minor means you're looking at ESCOM, you're looking at, uh, <laughs> at labor disruption, as you say. It's all those other risks that come with it. So, you know, the it comes with a capital efficient approach, but it certainly comes with more risk as well. So, Ma, I think that's really all we have time for this show. It's gone so quickly. It always does. And uh, as ever, it's fun to hang out with you. It's nice that we ended on gold. I would ask our listeners to go and check out Elite Risk. It's always cool to welcome a new sponsor on board. They ensure those sort of alternative assets and it's great to have them. Mo, great to have you too. You're a bit of gold yourself. And uh, I look forward to doing this again with you next week. Thanks, Ghost. I always enjoy this. And to our listeners, remember, subscribe if you haven't already and go out there, give us a great rating and spread the news about Magic Markets. Homes, cars, collectibles, you have sophisticated needs when it comes to insurance. So make sure you get bespoke insurance cover. Elite Risk Acceptances has you covered. Part of the old mutual group of companies, they are backed by over 180 years of insurance expertise. Visit eliterisk.co.za to find out more. Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. 
This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.